Hello, I'm sports broadcaster and presenter Paul Persick, and I'm taking you on a journey through sporting events that have stood the test of time. Welcome to Paul Persick Presents. Welcome to Series 1, Episode 4. We've had so far stories on innovations and on some of the legends of the game that experienced everything that came before them in the 1992 World Cup. But now we're going to go into some of the best matches. This week I sat down with cricket commentary veteran David Clear to talk about some of the best eight games of the 1992 World Cup, ranking from eight to one. The matches selected were not just based on how close the matches were, but also overall context of the World Cup, individual performances and team performances. Some of them are in New Zealand, some of them are in Australia. And I must have a spoiler. England and Pakistan feature heavily in them, so just be aware. Nonetheless, these eight matches on this episode of Paul Persick Presents the Colour World Cup is known as the Great Eight of 92. And that begins right now. David Clear, welcome to Paul Persick Presents. Thank you very much, Paul. It's a privilege to be on your show and uh, a Thursday night in Perth. It's getting a bit cold, isn't it? But oh, you got that right. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I'm just, I am missing cricket, I must say. So uh, after the, the last 12 months, we've had amazing Ashes series and World Cup in England. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk cricket again. Absolutely. And, you know, going back 28 years to uh, what is possibly one of the best World Cups in one day history, 1992 in Australia and New Zealand. And amazingly, 28 years later, it's still revered today as one of the best because of what it introduced at the time. Well, we just, Paul, didn't quite know how it was going to turn out. I mean, you're probably, uh, you know, my memory, because I'm a bit older, could probably remember, uh, remember a little more vividly, but you know, it was the first time for coloured clothing. It was the first time with white balls, black side screens. Uh, the noises were coming into viewers' lounge rooms, the stump mics. The first time they used Kerry Packer had introduced those as well. That's right. um, we had a new system of working out uh, the winners and revised targets in rain delays mm. to help the side uh, perhaps batting second a bit more. Um, so all these new things were coming in. They used two new balls with the white balls as well. So the, right. ball was, the ball was swinging. We were playing in Australia and New Zealand. But what did that mean for tactics for the teams? You know, and Pakistan obviously ended up winning the tournament, but they obviously had a good strategy to perhaps keep wickets early, don't worry about the run rate too much early, and then attack in the second half. And their team really suited that but yeah it was an exciting time because we saw all the coloured clothing we had the floodlights on as well um yeah so this was a really exciting era for cricket no doubt about it and of course the 1992 world cup would push those innovations right into the stratosphere and, mm. and to the effect of what we're seeing today in uh, in world cup since and the cricket itself you know can match that as well plenty of high standard games in front of great crowds across Australia and New Zealand. And today we're going to count down eight of those best uh, matches out of all the 39 matches that took place in the World Cup. And there ain't no better place to start at the start. Number eight. So let's get right to it. It is number eight. And only fitting, it's the first match. Australia versus New Zealand, Eden wow. Park in Auckland on the 22nd of February. And I think this match really sort of set the tone for what this 92 World Cup was going to be all about. And who would have thought Eden Park would be up New Zealand's sleeve this time and they would, uh, you know, cause a, a bit of an upset on day one, no less. Yeah, they got to play in New Zealand. But, you know, the two hosts playing against each other in the first game with the coloured clothing and no doubt the sense of excitement across both countries was immense and certainly in New Zealand where, you know, the game was played in Auckland at the famous Eden Park, of course, and that's intimidating for any visiting side. But this would be the start, Paul, of Martin Crowe's amazing tournament. In the end, he was player of the tournament, but 
his century in this game really forged victory for New Zealand. First ball of the tournament, John Wright was bowled by Craig McDermott, would you Down believe? Down the left side. <laughs> That's a, a terrible great, death at the start, isn't it? A great start by Craig McDermott and the Australians. They lost Andrew Jones, who was a prolific player as well, mm. early on, and they were two for 13. But um, Rod Latham and Martin Crow, of course, put on a, a good partnership. And then Ken Rutherford, who had a good tournament, very experienced player, made 57, got New Zealand to 248. So that was a good target, uh, basically the first innings of the tournament to get them off to a great start uh, for them. Enter Australia, and uh, David Boone and Jeff Marsh were the openers mm. and had been for, for some time. And Jeff Marsh, he got off to a, a start and one of the big surprises for the tournament, and it was a real masterstroke with New Zealand, is to open with Deepak Patel. Yeah, spin bowling, unheard of. In one-day cricket, the fast bowlers were still... It was quite traditional. Fast bowlers bowled early, and then the spinners came on later. But Deepak Patel was throwing the ball, the new ball, and it was was a real masterstroke for New Zealand. He Absolutely. restricted the scoring in the uh, what we would call the power play these days because it was the first time that they only had... They changed from four fielders outside the circle to two fielders outside the circle in the, in the power plays. So... It was a great effort from Patel, but Marsh, 19 off 56 balls, uh, struggled to get going, but Boone batted almost right the way throughout the innings. Just on that, with Dipak Patel opening the bowling for New Zealand, that left Australia in some sort of a dilemma as to how they, you know, take on the spin bowling. Do they attack? Do they defend? Do they push around for ones and twos? Hence that start from Marsh, you know, 56 balls to get to that 19. Again, like you said, that, that master stroke from Crow tr- proved to be very effective, not just at the start, but eventually at the finish. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, Australia got to none for 62, but it did take a lot of time. Marsh, 19 off 56 was final. Yeah. But Patel, 1 for 36 off 10 overs. And uh, the slow pace of Gavin Larson as well, 3 for 30 off 10. Steve War made 38 off 34 deliveries, so he tried to have a go at the end. But in the end, the total of 248 was just a bit too much for Australia. They were dismissed in the 49th over for 211. Like I said, Larson, three for 30, and Patel, one for 36. So a great start from New Zealand. It was a sign of things to come for them because Martin Crowe, man of the match, he made a superb century. David Boone matched that. He also scored 100. So a magnificent performance from him. He ended up being Australia's top scorer for the tournament. Um, a great effort from him in this game, but um, he just lacks support. Whereas New Zealand had Rutherford, who made 57. Yeah. But what a wonderful start to the tournament from New Zealand. New Zealand simply had, you know, a bit of batting depth on that day, you know, when David Boone was like the lone hand of that innings when all the other batsmen got starts but seemed to, you know, lose wickets at such crucial times. And that's, you know, what really caused Australia to go uh, downhill in that innings and lose in that game. But just on that, I spoke with Danny Morrison just a couple of weeks ago on this series and asked him, was New Zealand like, hang on, did we just cause the biggest upset of the tournament on day one? Because it was quite a surprise because New Zealand had been in such poor form leading up to the tournament. Yeah. Well, they, yes, that's right. Because in Australia, don't forget, are the defending champions. Yeah. They won in 87. That was a real surprise. And it was almost the start of a resurgence from Australia in, in international cricket. Um, leading up to 95, where they finally beat the West Indies in the West Indies in test cricket. But this was a blip in the radar. You know, there was a lot of expectation around Australia. We were hosting it. They went into the tournament with Ian Healy with a suspect hamstring. I don't think that helped them. Um, but, uh, yeah, they would have been favourites going in. And particularly after their win in 87, um, you know, and their Ashes win in 89 as well, coming into this tournament. There would have been great hopes in hosting and being able to make the finals. But, uh, yeah, didn't quite get off to the, the start that they wanted. And unfortunately, it would only get worse for the Australians, beaten by South Africa in their return, which was a historic statement of that, and would yep. end up finishing in fifth in, in the points table. But this match, you know, White's uh, at the start, because like you said, you know, it set the tone for what this World Cup was going to be and the standard of cricket that it was at the time. Some brilliant matches all around, and that's where it started. Now, we're going to move to number seven.
number seven. Number seven is pretty much a, a game where it's not reflected in the stakes, so to speak, on both sides because Pakistan it, were facing a win or bust situation. Number seven is Pakistan versus Sri Lanka at the Wacker in Perth on the third on the fifteenth of March, overcast Sunday morning at the Wacker. And as mentioned, it was a win or bust for Pakistan because they had an inconsistent record. They had to win the remaining three games. The first box was ticked off days before against Australia on the same ground. But Sri Lanka, they weren't going to make it easy for them one way or the other. No, a game at the Wacker and traditionally a fast-scoring ground, but also a great ground for fast bowlers. And Pakistan, we know, had Wasim Akram, of course. They had um, Akib Javed, a young, I think almost teenage fast bowler at that stage. They had Imran, of course, who didn't have perhaps full fitness, but was still bowling. And then they had the the spinner, Mushtaq Ahmed. Now, Mushtaq ended up being the best spinner in the tournament. And an amazing fact, out of the top 19 wicket-takers in the tournament, Mushtaq was the only spinner. Uh, So it just shows you, Paul, how much has changed between now and then. Now, most sides have got a leg spinner in their side and most have also got an off-spinner in their one-day team. But Mushtaq was in there. So... Perth conditions, you'd think, would have favoured Pakistan. But Pakistan, this was a really tense game. It went down to the to the last over. It did. And, of course, you know, winning the toss and Sri Lanka batting first, they got off to yep. a good start. But then, you know, their batting was seemingly a bit timid because, you know, like Australia in that first match, they would get starts but not go on with the job. But what they did was play brilliantly on the defensive side. They weren't bowled out for that matter as well. They only lost like right. six wickets. And they made 600, uh, six for 212 from uh, their full 50 overs. And then when Pakistan came out to bat, they didn't start off well. But what the key was in this game, two very, very good partnerships from Miandad and Malik, 101, and Ravi's Raja and Imran Khan making 51. Yeah, again, Paul, this was a sign. Like you said, perhaps what Sri Lanka were lacking in this game, they had quite a few guys that got 40s. No one got a 50. Uh, so they got to 212, which was gettable. But a sign of things to come was that Pakistan, again, a steady start. And Imran had put himself up the order in this tournament. Number three. Showed a lot of leadership by batting high in the order. And what he was doing was he knew the white ball was swinging. There was two white balls being used in each game, in each innings. A new ball from each end. He was going to defend early and stop Pakistan losing early wickets. So he defended stoutly. He made sure they got to the halfway point with not many wickets down. And again, in this game, that's what happened. It allowed Javid to come in 57 off 84 balls and Saleh Malik uh, 51 off 66 to put on that partnership, as you said, Paul, in the middle. 101 they put on, which was a real key to getting towards that target. Um, So they got to the last over and they needed uh, just a couple of runs to win and they got a boundary off the first first ball. Uh, But yeah, Javid had a magnificent tournament. Um, me and Daddy averaged, I think, over 60 for the tournament. And again, 57 here at Perth. And to think of it, Paul, that Sri Lanka, if they'd won this game, Pakistan may probably wouldn't have got in the finals. They wouldn't have at all because, you know, they had to win all their remaining three games and they were able to do so. But this was also an effort from Sri Lanka where they can hold their heads up high. You know, Pakistan, you know, were very, very good in the batting late. But Sri Lanka were as well. You know, Tilak Ratner and Kalpash had that late flourish to get them above 200, which was yep. a, a real bonus. And then the bowling, the pick of it, Ratmanaika with, uh, with two for 37. And, and it was their last game of the tournament. And that gave them good signs into the next World Cup in 96, which they would win. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was the start. They were trying some younger players. But Ratmanaika, yeah, two wickets for 37. And um, the other opener as well, he took... None for 34 off of 10 as well. So uh, that was an excellent performance from him. So the openers really tied him down. And really, none of the, none of the Sri Lankan uh, bowlers really let the side down. Um, Not at all. No, they were all sensational uh, there near, to, near the crucial end of the innings and at the start too when they got those early wickets. Now, we're going to we'll go to... Number- Wardner, that was the other opener. We'll say right. Wardner. We'll say um, Wardner. 34 off 10. So again, Pakistan were very cool under pressure, thanks mainly to Imran, where they, you know, just played out the opening bowlers and didn't really attack from the start. It's different these days. 
sides just go for it in that first in the power play. Yeah. You look at the way England play, but this was the first tournament with white balls. The ball was swinging every game. It was, and it just couldn't stop. I don't know if they make the balls any differently these days, Paul, but uh, <laughs> the ball was swinging every game, and, and Pakistan played it well by not losing wickets early. Absolutely, and of course, that what's got them through to not just the finals, but also the world crown in, uh, eventually. Number six. We're going to number six, and it's the second semi-final, England and South Africa at the SCG. Now, originally I had to place it higher on this list of eight, but it's low because of what we'll get into later, which is the anticlimactic ending to the match. But it was very overcast there in Sydney. A lot of uh, rain threatening at the, at the start and near the end of the game, but it did rain at the start, causing a bit of a delay. But a big gamble from Kepler Vessels, winning the toss and bowling first, being not too worried about the rain, should it come during the match. Yeah. Um, yeah, this was an amazing game and there was a lot of controversy. Um, you know, it was South Africa's return to international cricket and, and the controversy at the end of the game with the new system of revised targets coming in. Yeah, nice and, overs, yeah. You know, towards the end of the game, uh, when it did rain, South Africa needed 22 off 13 balls. It did. Uh, so then the revised target, the announcement came out that they would need 22 off seven balls in the revised target. However, that was a mistake. Mm. And they then came out with another announcement. They need 22 off one ball. Just one. You can imagine their re reaction was just devastation, anger, frustration, and they had no way of winning the game. But... It's interesting, reading up about this game, as you say, Wessels won the toss and bowled. They only bowled 45 overs. Yeah, they really slowed it down uh, a lot. To, to England. And there was some criticism in the media that they perhaps were deliberately slowing things down to frustrate England. But they didn't help things. They bowled 15 wides and no balls as well, which didn't help them with their over rate. So England only got to face 45 overs. So they did well to get to 252. There's no question. Um, you know, Graham Hick, a superb knock, 83 off 90 balls. Alex Stewart, 33, had a good tournament. Neil Fairbrother had an excellent tournament, 28 off 50. Um, Donald was surprisingly expensive. Alan Donald, two for 69. He had a great tournament, but they really took to him. Um, and Merrick Pringle, uh, had a wonderful tournament himself, two for 36 bowling. His outswing deliveries, he was really good as well. But uh, a competitive total, Paul, of 45 overs, 252 in a semi-final. Um, that's a really good good target that England set. Would they have made 300 if England had received their 50 overs? Because at yeah, the run well, rate they were going, it was possible. Yeah, well, they would have been frustrated, I'm sure. The way they paced their innings they would have been banking on facing 50. They didn't in the end. They got cut short. So that would have robbed them of, um, you know, some of their highest scoring overs. They only lost uh, six wickets. So, you know, you had the likes of Chris Lewis and Dermot Reeve still at the crease. You know, Lewis was 18, Reeve 25, uh, not out. And they were, had plenty of batting left in their, in their team. So they would have been frustrated with that. Strong depth they certainly did have, England, and a total like that in 45 overs, very, very competitive. And South Africa, when they came out to bat, they wanted to attack because 252 in 45 overs in that era is a mountain to climb in these sort of conditions. You know, Vessels went out early, and then Andrew Hudson, Caper, and Johnson Rhodes all made starts. But really, it, they, they weren't big enough scores. You know, Rhodes no. in the 40s as well, uh, Hudson uh, in the yeah. 40s too, and Caper in the 30s, and then we go to the 43rd over when, uh, you know, there were 20-odd runs still to get. It was about, I think it was a 12-minute delay, but it was enough, you know, to ruin yeah. South Africa's hopes. And many, many say, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, the rain, you know, what ridiculous ruling at the most productive overs. But many still forget what South Africa did earlier in the day. When they were under pressure, they slowed it down. They were entitled to use that as a tactic. Did it penalise them in the end? It obviously did. Well... You know, they only had 45 overs to, to bat themselves to, to try and get the target. But um, despite the fact that no one went on and made a 50, they were able to keep the run rate at a manageable target. So 2.1 overs remaining, they needed 22. 
I, th- I reckon these days, Paul, they probably maybe would have extended the time. We don't really know how late it was getting in the in the day, but sometimes these days, you know, the sort of result becomes more important. They manage to find a way to to uh, finish the game, but they were obviously under time restrictions, the umpires, and they had to had to make this call. So, yeah, and but you know the rules regarding revised targets. Originally, they were really favouring the side batting first. What they used to do was the average runs per over in the first innings was applied to the second innings. So the side batting second really had the advantage. They, uh, you know, they could just meet that runs per over the team batting first didn't win the game. So it disadvantaged the side batting first. But this really went to the other extreme where the new system was to remove the overs, which were the most inexpensive Mm. in the first inning. So what the umpires did here with two to three overs lost, they would have taken off a couple of maidens, perhaps an over where there was a leg by or one run off it, and then that became the revised target. So, um, you know, that's that's why they were left in the situation where they went from 22 off 13 to 22 off one. Uh, you know, the target remains the same, but the overs are removed. And, um, well, the target, sorry, got reduced by one, but the overs got reduced by three. So, you know, it's very difficult. But that has since again been modified under the Duckworth-Lewis system. And we seem to have a method now which is far more palatable to both the t- side batting first and the side batting second. Um, only go along with that. Obviously, the, the, DL, the DLS method as it is now, you know, is yeah. a much more fairer, you know, formula to, you know, sort out rain-affected games depending on, you know, the time lost and the overs lost. Yeah, the, the problem here, and I think I've read today that even in the current Duckworth-Lewis system, it would have been the same outcome. South Africa would have needed 21 off one. Mm. But the problem was the rain delay was so late in the innings. It was, yes. That to apply a revised target, very difficult for South Africa. Yeah, it was always so, going to be really tough. They were in yeah. trouble. But anyway, that was heartbreaking for them. But Richard Edlingworth, the spinner, two for 46. Gladstone Small, two for 51. Did particularly well. They were missing Derek Pringle. But Philip De Freitas did a great job. One for 29 off eight. Derek Pringle had a, had a really good tournament. And he yeah. missed this semi. But he came back and bowled superbly in the final. So he, um, medium pacer, swung the ball uh, quite a lot in this tournament. But they were missing him. So all the more meritorious for this performance from England. And people forget about that because they felt sorry for the drama for South Africa at the end of this game. But uh, a magnificent game of cricket in the end, full of drama. Mm-hmm. And World Cups tend to produce that. Yeah, and this semi-final was no exception, you know, depending on, you know, whose point of view that uh, many believe. At Fifth Quarter Tees, we're devoted to helping clubs access their own clubware and merchandise throughout the season. No more worrying about that start of season mass purchase. Of 100 club jumpers that take two years to sell and have to be stored in a club room cupboard. Instead, club coaches, members and supporters can have 24-7 access to all clubware and merchandise. From jumpers and t-shirts to backpacks and mugs. And all it takes is a click of a button. Fifth Quarter Tees. Making life easier for clubs and volunteers. Number five. Now we're going to go to number five. Number five. And who would have thought, David, who would have thought that regional matches, matches in regional <laughs> areas in the World Cup, would be a big winner. And that was the case in 1992. Ballarat, New Plymouth, Mackay, all were yeah. awarded matches. But the yeah. best of them is on this list. It has to be England versus Zimbabwe in, of all places, the Lavington Sports Ground in Albury. And uh, it was another upset. You know, it, it had been a World Cup where not many upsets had been made, but this one had to be the coup de grace. Oh, you're absolutely right, Paul. There was, this was historic for so many reasons. You know, the match was played in Albury in New South Wales, just north of uh, the border, of course, there with Wodonga. Uh, England had won five of the first six. This game was right at the end of the tournament. Mm. 
Mm. It was the last game, qualifying game for England and Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe were winless. They hadn't won a game in the tournament. England had won five of the first six. So they'd got themselves into the semi-final position. So they'd lost the previous game against New Zealand. And they went into this last game assured of a finals berth. But they came up against a Zimbabwe side, very, very determined. And they came up against a chicken farmer by the name of Edo Brandis. Who would have thought a chicken farmer would be a cult hero in the game of cricket? What a performance he put in in that match. Of course, Zimbabwe, uh, we'll get to that in a moment, but Zimbabwe won the t- uh, decided to bat first and, you know, they got a skittle for a poultry 134. And earlier in that day, we all thought the result is academical. And no wonder because England, again, very strong depth, plenty of experience in that yeah. World Cup and the bowling showed, you know, Illingworth, three wickets and Ian Botham playing in his last World Cup. And still in his prime and not 100% fit, taking three for 23. Yeah, he, um, he again used his guile and skill during the tournament, bowled a lot of medium-paced outswingers and took up a, you know, mate, took quite a few wickets, three for 23 in this game off 10. But they restricted Zimbabwe. The pitch conditions, from all reports, it was keeping low and there was some variable bounce. It wasn't easy to score quickly. Mm. So the, the total set by Zimbabwe of 134 of 46 overs was probably worth a bit more than that. Um, so, you know, Hort, David Horton, the captain, made 29. Interesting enough in this game, Paul, the previous win by Zimbabwe in the World Cup was nine years previously, in 1983, when they, of course, beat Australia. Opening day, 83. <laughs> they caused one big upset in one World Cup, beating the, the Aussies who had had a successful summer as well. And then all of a sudden, we didn't know it at the time, but Zimbabwe were about to go on this absolute tyrant of wickets in the second innings yeah, and fine. dismissing them for 125 with uh, Edo Brandes, as I said, being the cult figure taking four for 21 off 10 with four maidens. What a spell of bowling. And this is coming from a minnow nation who had only just qualified two years yeah. before in 1990. And pretty and, much amateur, amateur status, the players, you know, so... Mm. And uh, there was a, a man by the name of John Tricos who played in this game. Yeah. This is a really interesting element of history. He played in, this, in the game, their previous win, 18 matches previous in the World Cup in 83 against Australia to win that game as well. And he is a man who, who debuted in Test cricket for two different countries, for South Africa in 1970, and then 22 years later for Zimbabwe in 1992. Incredible, really. That, Absolutely. Uh, he would debut for two different countries, but also play in these two winning World Cup games for Zimbabwe. And his figures in the end of none for 16 off 10 overs. Absolutely and not, incredible. And not uh, one boundary shot. No, no. Off spinner, of course. Uh, varied his pace really well. But Brandis, as you say, Paul, Gooch, LBW off the first ball of the innings. Off to a bad start, one for none. But he took four of the first five wickets, Brandis. And he was... His best friend, Graham Hick, was playing in the opposition. Hick, of course, originally from Zimbabwe. Yeah. He was having a drink with him the previous evening. And he said, I'm going to get you out tomorrow. You're going to be my bunny. And sure enough, he bowled him for a duck. Just uh, on six uh, balls. <laughs> yeah, so um, England struggled all the way through the innings. They got to the last over. They were only 120-odd. And they were dismissed for 125. Incredibly and amazing scenes there for Zimbabwe. Branders four for 21. The man of the match, uh, Omar Shah, two for 17 off 10. A great bowling performance as well. Butchart, two for 32 off 10. And Tricos, as we said, none for 16 off 10. So England were already in the finals, but let's not take anything away from Zimbabwe. Oh, they were magnificent. Absolutely a magnificent performance it was from Zimbabwe. But, But this match also proves that, you know, the idea of having games in non-metropolitan areas, regional areas of Australia and New Zealand proved to be yeah. such a winner at the time. The crowds were great in all venues. Our Albury, as you mentioned, Ballarat, Mackay, and the beautiful Pukakera Park in, in New Plymouth too. So I'm quite surprised sure. why they didn't do it in 2015. I guess, you know, more bigger stadiums means more dollars yeah. for the ICC. There's lots of off-field requirements these days for international cricket. Absolutely. So particularly off-field, you've got to have security. You have to have the ground fenced off. We've got to have all the medical facilities, the, the drug testing facilities. So it's less likely that a country venue would qualify. The other venue was Berry, of course. Yeah, South Australia. Where they, where they played. But, uh, yeah, wonderful opportunity for the country people to see these games. Neil Fairbrother batted well for England for two hours, 20 off 77 deliveries. 
Um, but um, yeah, they just couldn't match the performance from Zimbabwe. Number four. We're staying with England for this next entry. They had a lot more closer games than most other nations. And number four is where it is at this time. It's the preliminary game against South Africa, their first encounter in Melbourne at the MCG. And again, Mother Nature had uh, some sort of role in the game. <laughs> That's right. Well, England, South Africa, they just produced two of the amazing games of the tournament. And this one is a re good reason why this was ranked number four. Uh, game in the tournament, but England won this game with just one ball remaining. Um, but incredibly, South Africa with their start, you know, the opening partnership, um, England won the toss and they fielded, but Kepler Vessels and Andrew Hudson didn't mind. Vessels scored 85, Hudson 79. They put on 151 for the first wicket. You would think with that start, they're going to be hard to beat. Um, but in the end, they managed 236 off their 50. Perhaps they're a bit underachieved. Um, although Hudson took 115 balls for his 79, Vessels 126. So perhaps that was just the way of scoring in those days. But it certainly left the door open for England to chase that down. Graham Hick, interestingly enough, two for 44 uh, with his deliveries. And Philip DeFratis, by well again, one for 41. Mm -hmm. Of, uh, of his nine, but yeah, and the, the, the batters coming in after the opener scored at about a run of ball, but nothing more than that. Would so they have if, made above 260 or 270? Yeah, with that start, um, you know, you'd think that they would have been able to score more than that in this particular match. So then it came to uh, England's innings and uh, the ultimate man of the match in the end, Alex Stewart, um, got out of the gate like a bull at the gate, 77 off 88 deliveries. But Robin Smith was out for a duck. Graham Hick was out for one. And Neil Fairbrother joined uh, Alex Stewart and he added some more runs and added a lot of weight to the second half of the innings. He made ended up being 75 not out of just 83 deliveries. It's interesting, as you said, Paul, the rain came. England were none for 62 after 12. That's right. Great start by them. Both of them and Stewart were opening the batting, two attacking players. Mm. Uh, both of them had made 22. But the rain came, there was a delay, and then there was a, a revised target. Now, this obviously put pressure on England because as soon as they came back out, they lost three wickets for four runs. That's right. Um, so they, you know, that really put them on the, on the back foot. Because the target, cause the target um, when, when the delay stopped and the players came back on the field. I think it was 226 and they lost nine overs. Yep. So that put a lot of pressure on them. And again, that confirmed, you know, how absurd the rain-affected match rules were at the time. <laughs> yeah, well, the revised target, you said, 226 off 41. So they lost nine overs, but they only lost... Uh, 11 uh, runs. It's uh, 10 runs. Yeah, 10 or yeah, 11 so, runs there. Um, it made, made it very tough for England. So all the more meritorious for the performance. In the end, and Neil Fairbrother, the nuggety left-hander, he just played. He probably played one-day cricket a bit like Mike Hussey in those days. He he hit the ball around, trying to score off every ball. Lots of singles, lots of nicks on the leg side, um, and then some punishing boundaries towards the end. So, yeah, he he was uh, probably a bit before his time. But Stewart and Fairbrother, they got them to uh, that target. Second last uh, second last ball of the innings. They got the target with seven wickets down. Chris Lewis, an important 33 of 22 deliveries as well. And for South Africa, Richard Snell, three wickets. And uh, the big fella, uh, McMillan, two for 39 off, off eight as well. So um, an amazing finish to this game. Second last delivery, a win for England after the revised target. They were probably affected, disaffected by the rain delay, uh, but they still got up and won. Yeah, and, and for once, the side batting second was at the right result of this uh, of this <laughs> rain-affected match, given all the criticism that uh, the most productive overs all the time had uh, on this. And this, this course of gave England uh, second place in the table, and South Africa needed to win their remaining group game against India, which they did in Adelaide to uh, secure a final spot. Speaking of India... Number three. They land our spot at number three. And this match is India and Australia 
at the Gabba in Brisbane on the first day of March, Sunday morning, overcast. But the Aussies, like India, they were hell-bent on winning this match after four starts of the tournament. Yeah, really crucial game. Almost a knockout game, this one, for Australia and India. They hadn't had the best of tournaments. Alan Border wasn't making runs for Australia. Kapil Dev, um, despite taking some early wickets in the tournament, wasn't scoring a lot of runs. He was the hero in 1983, of course, nine years previous, um, in their amazing win over the West Indies in that final at Lords, uh, nine years previously. So, yeah, he wasn't having the best of tournaments. Um, Azaruddin was having a good tournament um, for him. So, yeah, it was it was a fascinating game going into this, and uh, there was a lot of pressure. Both sides weren't playing at their best, and for some reason, Australia just couldn't quite hit their straps during this tournament. But this game was a classic. It certainly was. And, of course, batting first, the Aussies, they didn't start off that well. Uh, they were both uh, dismissed very cheaply, the openers, Taylor and Marsh. But then when David Boone and Dean Jones got into their strides, they really started to look impressive. 71 runs at the yeah. end of that. Australia were looking at quite a really good total with uh, Boone and Jones and even uh, Warren Moody starting to hit well later yeah. in the innings. Well, they brought Mark Taylor into the, into the lineup. Um, opening the batting. So he only made 13 to open with Jeff Marsh, left right hand combination, and Boone dropped down to three. Boone had been in such great form, but he made 43 and put on a great partnership with the one day maestro, Dean Jones, who. Some uh, big hits he had. He six fours and two sixes in his 90s, but lots of hard running. Um, Steve Waugh, 29, Moody, 25, and uh, Alan Border batting, well, batting at seven, only made 10. But uh, for the tournament, AB only averaged eight, would you believe? Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't his greatest tournament. That's probably an understatement. Kapil Dev took three for 41 in this game. Manoj Prabhaka, he used to swing the ball prodigiously, as we yes. remember. Three for 41. So 237 in the end for Australia. And again, that's a target that India would probably back themselves to get close to. Because they were looking at about 250, 260 at one stage, the Australians, with the Jones yeah. and... Boom partnership, but you know that late collapse at the end. You know, thought made the Australians think, okay, we may have been you know 15, 20 runs short, but that gave their bowlers you know something to aim at, and they started well. You know, with uh, Chris Rikant being bowled by Craig McDermott off uh, ten balls, but then Muhammad Azruddin and Ravi Shastri uh, got themselves into a bit of a partnership, and they started to look good. Yeah, Ravi Shastri opening the batting, um, one of the head hod shows in Indian cricket these days, of course, mm -hmm. twenty five. Um, but Azaruddin put on a masterclass. He was finally run out for 93. Um, but Sanya Manraka, who um, came in at six and scored, started scoring some really quick runs, 47 or 42, batted with Azaruddin. And they got themselves into a pretty good position there at uh, four for 194, chasing Australia's two, uh, 237 in the end. But uh, there was a collapse um, once Azaruddin was run out and Manraka was also run out. So some good Australian fielding and perhaps some panicky running by the Indians. There was a collapse and Australia were able to, um, to take this game by three runs. Coming to the last over... Well, we mustn't forget, we mustn't forget, David, there was also rain in the game yeah, after there was, 16 yeah. overs and that revised the target to 236. Yeah, 236... Um, I think of 47. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, India were one for 45 in the 17th over. So that, and that's when the rain came. But they got to the last over. They needed 13 off the final six. Kieran Moray, the keeper, hit two fours in two balls. Yes. So they needed five off four. India were then the favourites. Um, but Australia pegged them back. They lost wickets and they had uh, uh, down to the last two batters in the end. Uh, Van Katapathy Raju, of course, and um, Yavagal Srinath. Mm. So they were the, the last two in. And they needed four off the last ball. And in Steve Waugh's book, he writes about this, but Tom Moody was bowling. The ball got hit out towards Steve Waugh. It looked like a safe catch for him. Yeah. But uh, he said in his book that he, he started to panic a bit and he ran too quickly towards the ball. He ended up spilling it. Yeah. And he reckoned he looked up and he saw Raju pump his fist and head for the third run. He got that angry, he reckoned he just hurled the ball. And in this game, 
David Byrne had taken the gloves because he and Healy didn't play because of his hamstring injury. That's right. And so uh, an unlikely figure at the stumps was waiting for this ball to come in. The ball came rocketing in from Steve Waugh and uh, the Indian batsman was short of his ground, only just. So they fired by one run to win. <laughs> just one. To tie this game and um, Australia win the game by one run. So, um, yeah, so an amazing game in the end, but what a, what a calamity of events that last ball. Yeah, it had absolutely everything, all the drama that a World Cup game could ever want. And uh, Steve Waugh's throw good enough to uh, allow David Boone to rattle the stumps there. And it would turn out to be the closest game of, uh, of the World Cup. But plenty of stakes in that one as well, because Australia, obviously, two losses in their first two games. India had lost to England, then a washout, and then another loss. And I'd say this match would, would cost India their eventual final spot yeah, because they right. just didn't bounce back after, after that loss, despite everything that went well for them early on uh, in yeah, that very even game. Very even game. Two, two of the batters got 90s. You know, Dean Jones and Mohamed Azaruddin. Um, and Dean Jones ended up being man of the match, courtesy of being on the winning side, I'd suggest. So, uh, yeah, for India, uh, or sorry, for Australia, Tom Moody picked up three wickets for Australia. He was a bit expensive, three for 56. And Craig McDermott was quite economical, one for 35 off his nine. And he had a good tournament. Mike Whitney he was probably Australia's most impressive bowler for the tournament. None for 36 off 10. Good left-hander. Yeah, left-hander. So, um, yeah, it was a good all-round effort from the Australian bowlers. And the game really could have gone either way in the end. Yeah, a tie would have been a great result as well. Uh, hindsight's a wonderful thing in world sport. But so the Australians got home. And, of course, India, you know, by the skin of their teeth, just, uh, just fell short. At Fifth Quarter Tees, we're devoted to helping clubs access their own clubwear and merchandise throughout the season. No more worrying about that start of season mass purchase. Of 100 club jumpers that take two years to sell and have to be stored in a club room cupboard. Instead, club coaches, members and supporters can have 24-7 access to all clubwear and merchandise. From jumpers and t-shirts to backpacks and mugs. And all it takes is a click of a button. Fifth Quarter Tees, making life easier for clubs and volunteers. Number two. And of course, we get to the finals. The first of the finals on this list, and possibly not the last. Number two, the semi-final. New Zealand versus Pakistan, Eden Park. Some Pakistani journalists have gone on record saying that this is the most memorable game <laughs> that they have ever covered. And it's not hard to see why. You know, semi-final, yeah. high stakes, Eden Park. Pakistan were not fancy, but keep in mind, they had only beaten New Zealand days before in Christchurch. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, to make the final, Pakistan had to win their last three games and hope that Australia beat, I think it was the, either the West Indies or India. It was the West Indies, but uh, if, if, if and, New Zealand uh, they, had they lost... They needed Australia to beat West Indies, and that happened, and um, they got into the, into the final. So um, they got into the finals, and then they obviously played the semi-final against New Zealand. They were playing away from home against a, a rampant New Zealand and their crowd, of course, but the two captains, you know, who was going to be destined for greatness? Martin Crowe, had a magnificent tournament, leading his team superbly, and Imran Khan, who during the tournament had a theme of that they were going to play like cornered tigers. Yeah. Uh, so he's often been known as the Lion of Lahore. Yes. But he was asked by, I think, Ian Chappell in a game in Perth, why are you wearing... Because he came to the toss wearing a T-shirt with a tiger on it. Yeah. He said, we're going to play like cornered tigers. These days, I'm not sure if you get away with coming to the toss. I think you have to wear your full uniform. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but he was wearing this tiger on his T-shirt. Different times, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was the theme for Pakistan. They were going to play like cornered tigers. And this tournament was played in March as well, Paul. Mm, February and March. That's yeah. the start of Ramadan. Yes. So Pakistan is predominantly in, uh, a Muslim country, of course. Correct. 
they were praying five times a day. Mm. So I think um, it was something like five o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock, one o'clock, three o'clock, and six o'clock, I think. Correct. Where they were coming together as a team, they were praying. On the team bus, when they went to matches, Imran had arranged for a tape um, of some chanting um, towards Allah. Uh, so this was another thing during Ramadan that bonded the team as well. And um, yeah, they, it's amazing really, isn't it? The sorts of things that bond teams and he put himself up the order to, to sort of lead by example. Um, but yeah, that was just... And, and the Pakistan players said afterwards that even when they were struggling during the tournament, Imran had this great belief that they were going to win. Mm. And they thought he was a bit unusual or a bit strange because they were struggling. They weren't in the top four. He said, no, it's okay. We're going to win the tournament. So there was this great belief going on at the time. Anyway, I digress a little bit, but it's nice. It's interesting to hear some of the background around yeah. what was going on behind the scenes for Pakistan. Um, but anyway, this game, New Zealand won the toss and decided to bat first. Martin Crow, uh, look, just continued on where he left off. Amazing. A wonderful partnership with Ken Rutherford. Um, the first few players, great batch, Wright and Jones. Got starts but didn't make big scores. But um, they got to uh, three for 194. 107, Ken Rutherford, who made 50, and Martin Crow, who was run out just shy of his century for 91. Um, got them up to seven for 262. So, another big story on that innings was Martin Crow. He, he got injured during uh, that innings, but the yeah, team didn't hamstring. know to what extent, but it, yeah. got, it carried on to some point where he needed a runner. And after that innings, you know, when they made that total of 262, thanks to Crow and, uh, and Rutherford, there was a bit of a dilemma on whether Crow should sit out the innings and watch from the sidelines or stay out there and risk aggravating his injury. Yes, that's right. Um, he decided to bat on. And obviously with the final approaching, it was a bit of a risk, but they needed to win this semi-final. Mm. And in the end, which was an interesting facet in this game, he sat off for the fielding innings. Yeah. Now, he was controlling the tactics all the way through the tournament. And John Wright took over the captaincy. But as we will discuss in a minute, not everything that... Martin Crow had planned for the innings, was executed by John Wright. And there was some different tactics, which was what was planned by Crow. But again, that's probably a communication thing between captain and vice-captain for those things to happen on the field. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Pakistan, the way they went about attacking the score. Well, they needed to attack right from the word go because 262, you know, that's the equivalent of about 350 in, in today's one-day standard. Yeah. Well, that's right. But again, they didn't panic. It was no. a, um, Imran, the ball was swinging around. Imran made 44 batting at number three of 93 deliveries. So he just made sure, again, they didn't lose wickets early. Rami's Raja opened the batting, 44 or 55, which was a, a really good start. But, um, yeah, it was looking like they were going too slow to get to 262. Uh, they actually, Javed Mandad came in. There was some controversy around because Chris Harris was having an unbelievable day in the field. He'd thrown the stumps down a couple of times. Once, when Javed had only faced five deliveries, threw the stumps down, the replays were showing he was just short of his ground. Yes. Like, no video replays in this tournament. Yep, no lights in those days. You know, it was so different. So they, by the, to the naked eye, it was very difficult for the umpire to tell. Mm. Um, he also threw down the stumps when Moen Khan was batting later in the innings. Moen hit a few boundaries, which was critical in this game in the end towards the end. But Harris also threw the stumps down. But again, it showed agonisingly short of his ground, but he was given not out. Video replays were introduced later that year in mm. 1992. That's right. So they only just missed out on this tournament. They had a lot of innovations, but not in this tournament, unfortunately, for Chris Harris and New Zealand. Anyway, Javid, 57, he batted through the innings and was there at the end. They needed 123 off fifth of the last 15 overs. If I could recall as well, Javid had yeah. a, a, bit of a, a bit of a stomach problem. 
All right, okay. Because yeah, uh, on the Cricket in Colour documentary, uh, one of the packy, packy, packy journalists said uh, he had got used to eating Vitalex, if, if I could pronounce it right, and he also was chewing tobacco, which damaged membranes <laughs> of his stomach area. So every time he got a single or two runs, he would often crouch down and hold the handle of the bat, and he would always be in a lot of pain. How he stayed there throughout the innings, that, that's balls of steel. Yeah, that's right. That's right, and uh, well put, Paul. But, uh, yeah, a lot of courage from, from Javid and a lot of determination and professionalism um, from him. And don't forget Ramadan, they would be fasting as well during yeah, the day absolutely. and then eating at night time. So, yeah, good, a lot of challenges there for Pakistan. But they got to a point where they needed eight over eight runs and over. Mm. And in 1992, that's a lot. It is. They needed 104 off the last 13, but enter Inzamam Ulhaq. He uh, came of age. He, the interesting thing is that Martin Crowe was off the field. We spoke before with his hamstring. He decided to rest it before the final coming up. He, during the tournament, they bowled the bowlers in lots of short spells so the batsmen couldn't get settled. John Wright was bowling their bowlers in long spells. Yes. And um, he was providing some gaps in the field in the last two balls of every over. And so I think even at the last drinks, Crow had said to him he wanted certain bowlers to be bowled, but Wright decided he was going to bowl other bowlers. So there was some disagreement there between captain and vice-captain. And it would have been interesting if Crow was captaining on the field, but... He did his hamstring. He couldn't captain. But Inzamar Mohawk immediately started attacking. 60 of 37 deliveries. Phenomenal. He was dismissed, run out by Chris Harris, of course. An amazing performance in the field by Chris Harris. He did get one his way, at least. <laughs> Mohan Khan batting at eight. 20 not out of 11 balls. Joined Jarvid. Jarvid was just pushing the ball around. And they got there after 49 overs the target so what a chase one over remaining but an incredible display in the last 15 overs by pakistan the tactics from imran worked again 44 of 94 deliveries imran mm. but they they finished in a flurry and and got there in the end willie watson two for 39 for new zealand off his 10 overs chris harris was expensive one for 72 off 10 inzi uh, went berserk and he was rightly deserved the got the man of the match but um what an incredible game. I think New Zealand and the crowd would have expected, would have been anticipating a, a New Zealand win. But, you know, just even after last year's World Cup, Paul, how close they've come has yeah. been quite bizarre, isn't it? You New feel Zealand. for them, you know, that they've come close so many times, you know, not just yeah. in, in this semi final, the semi in 99, and also in, in 2007, and then the two finals in a row from 2015 to 2019. You, you just hope that they could win one. Definitely, it's got to be 2023 in, in India. But this game, this game was, was just incredible. And, and it summed up, in one way, the story of Pakistan's determination and their resiliency in such tough situations. And the Tiger theme really paid off. And it would pay even more dividends three days later because that is our number one. Number one. The final. Naturally, the final comes down to two teams. This time it was Pakistan and England, March 25th, 1992, in front of uh, 87,000 at the MCG. And, and just on a background of that, it about 85,000 of those, or 80,000 of those, were Australians. They suddenly became Pakistan supporters that day. Yeah, Australia missed out on the finals, of course, but they would uh, like to support anyone that's playing England, I think. And it's the same... You know, I was fortunate enough to be over in England during the World Cup last year, but it's the same. The English were supporting whoever was playing Australia. And uh, it's the same over here a little bit, such as the rivalry between the two, uh, two countries, the Australians and the English, which is quite ironic, really, because there's so many people from English descent living in Australia. <laughs> yeah, just, and the opposite uh, as well, vice versa. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But Pakistan won the toss and decided... But what an occasion for Pakistan. They've come from nowhere to to be in the final, 87,000 people there. Uh, huge interest back home. Oh, yeah. Uh, massive cricket culture back in Pakistan. But they didn't get off to a great start. Derek Pringle swung the ball around alarmingly. Um, I think 13 runs off his first eight overs. And he dismissed Amir Sahal for four, Ramiz Raja for eight. 
and uh, Imran Karma batted three and Javed batted four. So those two resurrected the innings. They put on 139. Um, again, not overly quickly. Javed mean that 58 off 98. Imran 72 off 110. So they didn't panic. No, uh, at all. But again, those guys coming in at the end, the crucial partnership was Inzamam again, 42 off 35, and Wazim Akram. Some power hitting. Oh, especially of 18. Especially through the leg side. I think one of the shots sailed over mid-wicket and it you know, went to the boundary on the first bounce. <laughs> Simply incredible. So they got to 249 in the end, 6 for 249. Derek Pringle, superb, 3 for 22 off his 10. And uh, Defratis, again, quite economical, none for 42 off 10. But what was uh, also good about it for Pakistan, just quickly, is that you know they didn't panic but they also were opportune. They wanted to get every run that they can because they were in a bad position, you know, 2 for yep. 24 early. And well, you know, it was, was just well-composed yeah. uh, stroke-making across the ground for those four batsmen, Khan, Miandad, Ulhaq and Akram. Those were like the fable four of Pakistan's yeah, World right. Cup campaign, and they lived up to it. Well, they were 2 for 34 after 17 overs. Mm. England must have been just delighted on the inside at their start. Pringle bowling superbly. Um, to have them two for 34 off 17. But again, Imran and Javed didn't panic. And they got up to 249 in the end. Javed, me and dad, there was some discussion around two decisions that Steve Buckner, well, didn't make in the end. But uh, two very close LBWs off... Uh, very close. ...off Derek Pringle. Um, when he was... Wasn't many runs at all, but he was given not out. And... But they're reading up on the tournament... It was hard to get an LBW. It just seemed across the board, you know, umpires weren't overly willing to give them. Maybe because the ball was swinging around so much. We don't know. But um, anyway, that's that's the run of the green. Yeah, and, you know, it, it is often hard to, you know, interpret from the naked eye, you know, with those umpires, especially in those conditions when it's bright, sunny, a bit of glare coming towards uh, the players and the umpires. And with the ball moving, that adds to the challenge. And then we go to England. Now, their innings, 250 to win, five runs and over. Seems like a big total, but it is achievable in games like this. And then comes Wazim Akram again. If you thought his <laughs> sizzle with the bat was the only highlight, then fans ought to think again. And that started with his first over when he got Ian both. Yeah, well, that's right. He, they picked up both of them for a duck. Yeah. Uh, so both of them had a great tournament with the ball. Um, not as good with the bat, but they used as an opener. Tough against the white ball, of course, but he was out, caught behind by Moen or a duck. He was furious, Beefy. He was furious. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was a final, you know. Don't forget, England only just won their first World Cup last year. Mm. So they'd lost the previous final against Australia when they were expected to win it in the subcontinent in, in 87. Uh, they reached the final again, another opportunity for them. So no doubt he was furious. Alex Stewart was dismissed early by Akib Javid, also caught behind for seven. So they were struggling at two for 21. But um, Graham Gooch, a good 29. Hicks, 17. Um, but then Neil Fairbrother came to the crease, who had had a wonderful tournament. And In the middle order. He was joined by Alan Lamb. And they got to the score to four for 141 mm. of 34 overs. They were looking impressive. So that's drinks. They need 109. Of 16. So you're looking at six and a half and over. Very gettable. Mm. Very gettable. Um, but as we know, one of the most famous spells of all time, Wasim Akram was throwing the ball. Imran was reportedly said to him, don't worry about the wides, just bowl quick. Because that, that's how we used him, you know. Not just, yeah. not as a run container, but to get wickets at those times in the right. game. And then that spell, when he bowled Alan Lamb and Chris Lewis from round the wicket, no less, with those in-swingers, some of the best in-swingers I've ever seen bowled by anyone in my time of looking back and watching cricket. You just can't do anything but marvel at those skills. I mean, yeah. he had those skills throughout his career. And that spell steered the game back Pakistan's way. And yeah. if it wasn't for Wazim or Imran Khan telling him, take those wickets, don't worry about the wides and no balls, maybe Wazim wouldn't have got that confidence. Because there was another story in that Cricket in Colour documentary on the morning of the game. Imran Khan said uh, in the sports section of the Melbourne paper, he said, I want Wazim to bowl fast. I want him yep. to bowl express. And that gave Wazim tremendous confidence. And that 
resonated not just within himself but throughout the team. Yeah, well, encourage him to try and swing the ball as well. He had superb control of his wrist, was him. And um, yeah, two wickets and two balls absolutely turned the World Cup around the whole tournament, really. I mean, the first one, which was a he'd been bowling some in swingers to Alan Lamb. This one started on middle stump, moved away, coming left arm around, taking the off stump, an incredible delivery. And then Chris Lewis, poor guy, faced uh, one of the balls of the, of the tournament and probably in history, started well outside off stump, swung right in and uh, then ripped him as well. So two wickets and two balls. All of a sudden, England is six for 141. Um, so, you know, that's really turned the game in Pakistan's favour. Neil Fairbrother is still up the other end. Mm. Um, and he found a little bit of support from Dermot Reeve and Derek Pringle, but they just weren't scoring quick enough to, you know, reach the target of 249 or 250. They were under a lot of pressure because, you know, the rate was starting to slowly climb. Yeah, so, uh, you know, they got to 10, 15 runs and over, and in the end they were dismissed on the second uh, second ball of the last over. Um Neil Fairbrother was out for 62. Uh, Defratis made 10. Illingworth, 14. So they battled on at the end. The Thailanders, Derek Pringle was 18, not out of 16 balls. But they finished 22 runs shy of Pakistan's total. And the Corner Tigers won the tournament amongst a huge celebration um, back home in Pakistan, I'm sure. It's just a historic win, Paul, because they were under pressure all tournament. They were. The last four games were all knockout games for them. And then the fifth one was the final. It was like and they were in a round of 16, were they, you know, having to right. win all yeah. those games. And, and, and in such a fitting sign, too, because that last wicket, that very last wicket that <laughs> Rami's Raja caught Richard Lingworth, Richard Lingworth, it was bowled by Imran Khan. Only fitting that the, <laughs> the leader of this group, this dedicated and determined group, would take the final wicket. It was Absolutely. really his story at the end of the night. Yeah. Absolutely. So Imran picked up one for 43 in the end. He was a bit expensive. That was in his seventh over. Akit Javed, superb for a young bowler, two for 27. And Wasim Akram, the man of the match, three for 49. Mushtaq Ahmed, the leg spinner, three for 41. Um, so, yeah, they're all contributing. Amir Sahal bowled some spin in the final. Interesting, 10 overs for 49. But, uh, geez, they had some talent in that side, Paul. You can see why they perhaps won that that final, but all credit to them. They beat a strong England side. They, uh, you know, Australia couldn't make the finals on home soil. So Pakistan would have been at fairly long odds, I think, at the start of the tournament. Yeah, they weren't even expected to make the four at at that time. But, you know, it it also proves you may not be the ranked favourites, but it's all about getting the job done on the day, on the field, when it matters. And as it turns out, the Imran Khan's last game in, in international cricket but what a way to go out. You know, in your last game, 87,000, holding the World Cup in front of those fans at the MCG. <laughs> and who would have thought years later he would be Prime Minister of Pakistan? <laughs> I reckon his middle name should be Leader with a capital L. It's <laughs> destined for greatness. Yeah, absolutely. We probably don't, we probably don't hear enough from Imran um, about his style of leadership and, and what he thinks are the important things of leadership because I'm sure that if we produced uh, as many podcasts as... Say um, Tony Robbins, he would he would be famous for that as well. No but, doubt uh, about that. And there was also a big story. There was also another big story behind Imran Khan, um, you know, coming back to international scene because he had retired after yeah. 1987, but he came back because he said in in that same documentary, uh, we needed to win the World Cup to build the the cancer hospital and the horse. So his drive really wasn't personal success. It was yeah. all about you know helping his team and helping Pakistan as a whole. Driving him in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, some great motivations and reasons for winning. There was a few farewells in the tournament, Paul, and as well as Imran. Uh, Jeff Marsh, it was his last um, foray for Australia. He scored 150 runs in five matches. Chris Chakranth said goodbye to India. He only averaged 16 during the tournament. Ian Smith, um, he was replaced by Adam Perore in the team after this tournament. And Bruce Reid, he took, only took three wickets for the tournament, but he was last... Hurrah for Australia as well. But a good economy rate for Bruce, 3, 3.8 in the tournament. And uh, the debuts, some great debuts in the tournament. Andy Flower. Yes. Century on debut against Sri Lanka uh, in New Plymouth. Hansi Cronier debuted for South Africa. 
and he averaged 34 for the tournament. And Jaunty Rhodes, well, he made fielding fashionable, didn't he? He, he did. debuted for the tournament. And his famous horizontal uh, run out where he just destroyed the stumps of Inzamanal Hark. <laughs> Amazing. That, that's just out, as well as the stump cam. Athleticism personified by John T. Rhodes. It was something. Before we finish, uh, we must give out a few honourable mentions that, uh, that we had shortlisted for this game. We've got three of them just quickly. Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe. That was an honourable mention from New Plymouth. Beautiful ground. 600 runs scored in the game. And the first time a side had chased 300 down in, in a World Cup. England and India from the Wacker in Perth for two reasons. One, the closeness of the game, especially near the end. And, you know, yeah, from a biased point of view, Perth got the first ever day-night World Cup match. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a sign. And another one is Australia and South Africa from Sydney. It wasn't a close game, but the historical context behind it, seeing yeah. Australia play South Africa in their return, captained by a former Australian test player and South Africa winning, well, not just win, obliterating the Australians. Yeah, yeah, they Fired up and great scenes for South Africa. They've been out of the game for so long since, uh, I think, 1971. Yes. I think it was the last time they played. So, yeah, very historic. And it was great to see them back in the tournament. They certainly celebrated in style. They only just missed out by on the final by a whisker. Yeah. Wouldn't have that it would have that have been another fairy tale. And and you know, there was this sort of curse afterwards that, you know, losing semi-finals <laughs> and knockout matches, they did break it in twenty fifteen, but uh, you know, you ought to feel for them as well. But uh, nonetheless, that's the great eight of nineteen ninety two. And uh, David, thank you so so much for helping me count these down on uh, on this week's episode of uh, oh, it's, Paul uh, been great, Paul. It's um relive some fantastic memories just going through the, the games today and, and reliving some of those memories and um, you just feel inspired by a performance like Pakistan produced um, away from home and um, it's a great story you know they probably should make a movie out of it one day well it's nearly 30 years it's nearly 30 years yeah it's absolutely inspirational and the things that were going on behind the scenes um, just remarkable but again the World Cup it is a huge tournament for the ICC and it, it raises a lot of money for countries around the world in their cricket ventures, uh, some of the developing countries. So it's really important. And it, uh, it's great to relive the memories, Paul. And I appreciate you asking me on. And it's been a lot of fun. Absolute pleasure, mate. Paul Persick Presents is a series written, edited and presented by me, Paul Persick. If you would like to check out Paul Persick Presents social media content, you can go onto the show pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Episodes are available on SoundCloud, Wooshka, Podbean, Anchor FM, and on iHeartRadio. If you have a sporting event that you would like to see as a future series of Paul Persick Presents, then comment on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Paul Persick Presents is a Persick Spooner production. 